sharing is a way to get your ideas everywhere. We can create some very interesting outcomes. We're completely uncertain about what space we're going to have at the end of this. Welcome to Uncertainty Playground, a podcast about design research from the London College of Communication. I'm the Dean of Design, Dr Nikki Ryan. Uncertainty Playground is the title of our exhibition for the London Design Festival. It's inspired this series, which takes you behind the scenes as we prepare for the exhibition. We'll give you a taste of what's coming up in the festival and we'll be talking about how design can define, address and make meaning from the ambiguities and uncertainties that we currently face. This episode is all about the Future Makers show. In it, designers and printmakers perform their making processes in public and interact with their audiences. Gareth Foote and Ling Chu, who are key participants in the show, talk to me about the significance and politics of makerspaces and how their show uncovers the experimental nature of making. Hi, I'm Gareth Foote. I'm a technical coordinator here at London College of Communication. Hi, my name is Ling Chu and I'm the printmaking technical coordinator at LCC, so I oversee all of the printmaking workshops. We're currently in the relief printing space, which is a, a huge area and resonant with smells and textures. I wonder whether you could describe it to us, Ling, and say what the different pieces of equipment are here. So the relief printing room is one of the three printmaking areas that are interconnected on on this floor. Uh, We've got relief printing adjacent to etching and litho. And in the relief printing area, we're very lucky. We've got four beautiful traditional historic relief presses, Albion presses, Lion presses. So it's a real maker space and any student from any area of the college is welcome to come here. As part of our London Design Festival exhibition, we have a number of shows, one of which is the Future Makers show, which is about learning by doing and making. And I wonder if you could describe that to us, Gareth, and what you're planning for that particular event and show. Future Makers is the area of the show that's going to give an opportunity for designers and makers to reveal their process in a public setting. Essentially, we're exploring making as a form of inquiry and how makers relate to their tools and materials. This in particular speaks to the theme of uncertainty around the show here at London College Communication, because essentially creative exploration is a very experimental process, and the uncertainty in that is a huge part of it. We're going to try to engage with as many different audiences as possible. So we will be running public-facing workshops. We'll be doing workshops with families, um, workshops focusing on local educators in the area, um, drop-in workshops, live action things, trying to be as hands-on as possible and really get the public involved as part of this contribution to London Design Festival. You're going to be having the space of the Well Gallery. I wonder if you can describe what that space will look like. Essentially we're going to try to co-create a functioning, temporary, interdisciplinary makerspace in the World Gallery. So initially, there won't be a great deal of equipment and tools there, but we will have forums throughout the the weeks leading up to the show to discuss what we need and then, just in time, create the spaces that we need for the different types of activities that are going to happen there. One of the interesting things that we're kind of looking at is how makerspaces runs parallel to a culture of space making. So one of the 
pre-production projects that we're going to be doing as a team at LCC is looking at other making spaces that have popped up all around London. Uh, London is a prime example of a place where you can find maker spaces just about anywhere. So railway arches, backyard sheds, underground, random abandoned spaces. So looking at how these spaces have been adapted and the experts who adapt these spaces for creative making. And that's part of what we're going to be doing. As a curatorial exercise, it is a challenge because it's completely different from knowing what we're going to put into a physical space. We have activities that we're going to program into the space, and many of them actually don't quite get along in terms of their needs. We're completely uncertain about what space we're going to have at the end of this. Can you say a little bit more about maker culture? It's something you've referred to. How is that different from the cultures of making that existed before? Maker culture has been something that's talked about a lot as a kind of hybrid, democratic, inclusive approach to making. How is that different than what went before? Reflecting on the contemporary conditions of making today, it does seem that there's a reaction against prescribed, mass-manufactured goods and a shift towards a desire for consumers to enjoy handmade artisan products, but also the makers themselves are engaging in traditional practices and engaging with, for example, sustainability of their materials and developing new practices. And that comes from the inclusivity of the workshop. Often there's a discussion about a kind of the digital and um, analogue worlds. But um, can you say a bit about how maker spaces, if you like, are more hybrid spaces and what they do to that kind of binary relationship? When we're speaking about printmaking, people envision these, these handmade objects and handmade papers and handmade production. But we've been making books for 500 years. We've been producing in multiple and reproducing for product design and for all of these different functions for hundreds of years. There's always been a move towards efficiency, a move towards replicating, and a move towards market. We have to kind of take that as part of the practice that we have here. And there is no element in this workshop that doesn't have some digital element to it. And there's no element in this workshop that doesn't have an analog hand user experience to it. Um, and I think that's really important. Uh, even when we look at relief printing and people think of woodcut. Well, actually, let's look at that. The tools are now probably machine made. The paper has been machine made. We're machining it through machines. Um, a lot of the artwork that our students produce starts at some point or it might have some digital element to it. We're laser cutting now. We're 3D printing objects to use as relief objects. We're combining those technologies that Gareth looks at, the technologies that I look at, and our students are saying, actually, can I take something from this workshop and use it in that workshop to make something? I need to make this, and these two elements seem to go together for me. And they're generating that sort of cultural dialogue for us, and it's our jobs to solve it, which can be a challenge every day. In the areas that I work in, there's a traditional perception of them as purely screen-based and intangible. But what I've got in my hands here are two uh, pieces of not particularly well-cut fabric with um, conductive thread through them and a wearable microcontroller. Uh, and this is a very good example of how we um, push together the hard and the soft of electronics here. We've got, we've got conductive thread, which has a certain type of resistance in it. Um, we have a microcontroller for hooking up sensors to and uh, creating outputs, light, sound and movement. Uh, and also a pressure sensor, which is made out of conductive fabric and a material called Velostat, which is a semiconductive plastic with carbon in it. 
With traditional craft techniques within textiles, we can create some very interesting outcomes. We talked previously about these new makerspaces as being um, distributed, diverse and accessible. So can you describe what one might look like then? Because I know you don't know what yours will look like yet. And this is a kind of um, a living experiment. But maybe you could describe some of the makerspaces you've seen already so we can imagine what kind of tools might exist in it. At its core, most making requires four things. Uh, it requires water, generally, sometimes, maybe, not always, um, electricity, light, and possibly heat. And those are sort of four elements that kind of exist in many of the making spaces that we've looked at. In terms of a making spaces agenda, if, if it is about inclusivity, what you might see are tables that can be height adjustable, telescopic legs. We might have different surfaces that can, can, can control or maintain or support different weights of materials. Um, we might have glass surfaces, stainless steel surfaces, wood surfaces, and marble surfaces. If you wanted to temper chocolate, you need a marble surface to do that on. We want to encourage big making as well as little making. So that means, can we bring it up the stairs? Is there a lift access? And all those sort of practical things that actually universities have to deal with every day uh, really feed into that sort of maker culture. Making is uh, a local event, but we want to make it global through the sharing of those technologies, and that speaks very much to maker culture. Um, it's very much about open sourcing our materials, our methods, and our ideas, and our technologies. It's interesting that you picked up on the idea of sharing. Could you say a bit more about open innovation models? As we've been speaking about the maker movement generally, which has been described as a social movement, it's the practitioners and the knowledge that they share that, that enables that, that social movement to happen and the sharing of ideas. Social innovation is supported very much by communication technologies. Sharing is a way to get your ideas everywhere. And when we share openly through communications technologies, what we're doing is we're able to see something that we conceived here halfway around the world. Um, we're able to see it conceived by people and adapted into their own cultures, their own needs, their own situations. Um, there's a real drive towards almost like an anti-patent movement, looking at releasing ourselves from intellectual property especially when we look at the functionality of tools and our maker spaces. We want these spaces to exist elsewhere. We want these tools to exist elsewhere. We want the joy that we receive from making and the satisfaction of problem solving to be shared out as widely as possible. So our plans go up online. Everything is documented. Everything is open. We'll share our lists. We'll share really mundane things like our safety data sheets because we want to make sure that other teachers and other practitioners can access these sources. Where do our materials come from? What are the codes behind technologies? We want to drive that forward so that it's used as widely as possible. And that's a way of measuring the success of a maker culture. The more it's replicated, the more it's riffed on, played on, and adapted, the more successful that kind of making culture becomes. Uh, it, it blooms like mushrooms, basically. So does the maker culture have a political dimension then? What's its relationship to capitalism and the market? The idea of the maker movement is that it's an it is this open, sharing, egalitarian, and to a certain extent, anti-market thing. 
sharing comes with risks. If you don't patent your idea, there's always the risk that someone else will. There's always the risk that someone else with a less open heart <laughs> um, might see it as, and it's not even about open heart, might see it as a way to generate a living. And we all have to make a living. There's a lot of exploitation in making culture as well. We see a lot of ideas adapted by big corporations. We see a lot of things that start out as being really innovative and really niche and really adaptable, kind of being closed in on and, and used as a, as a tool, as a political tool, as an economic tool. Um, Richard Sennett talked about craft as slowing down labor. And I wondered, you often hear about terms like rapid prototyping and things. Is make a culture about slowing things down, about taking time to be with others and to share, or does it have a different relationship to craft? To speak towards the practice around programming and electronics, etc., there is this idea of iterating fast, which actually comes comes out of commercial software development. There's there's a motto which is release first, release early, or something to that effect, which some of that terminology, some of that ethos see, tends to get used in maker culture, but it's not, it's not the same in my, in, in my eyes. I, I, I believe the iteration on an idea using any technology is part of the creative process. I don't necessarily think that there is a increase or decrease in speed within a maker space or within maker culture. The increase in perhaps combinations of technologies, the increase in, in, in the willingness to push together various different things that haven't traditionally gone together to see what happens. So that could be the only way I associate that with a change in pace as such. Totally disagree. Okay. <laughs> um, printmaking is always seen as a craft culture, as a niche culture of making and craftiness. But actually each print technology is a sped up version of the one before it. In woodblock printing and relief printing, the room we're in right now, 600 years ago, you would take maybe 50 copies off a block. Then we move into etching and we're looking at 250. We move into lithography and we start talking thousands. We look at plate lithography, photo lithography, and now we're printing millions. It's about going faster to reach more people with the same kind of information more accurately. So in print technologies, they've all sped up. Each process has sped up the one before it and has answered technical problems of the one before it. What I'd say now is the democratization of printmaking means that people can then access all of these tools to proceed at their own pace. So an individual's pace can be driven from access to all of these tools. And that's what is one of the big challenges of teaching here. Um, is thinking about the pace and learning of each individual student and not saying that it takes eight weeks to learn how to etch, but what are you trying to do with it and how do we have that conversation with ourselves, between each other, between students, peer-to-peer -peer learning to make the best possible outcome from, from your question. I think that there is a speeding up of things and I think that is really important. Um, at the same time, I think it applies a lot of pressure to, to new learners. Um, Actually, yes, there is to a certain extent an increase in perhaps not necessarily pace, but there is an increase in the capacities of certain technologies to interpret and recreate the world around us. Traditionally, as well, there is no such thing as craft with digital, I think. It's all come along quite at the same time. There's been a parallel drive. What there definitely is an increase in continuously, particularly with digital technologies, is things like complexity and precision, as 
Ling was also saying about printmaking, that does definitely occur within digital technologies. What do you think are the values associated with a maker culture? Would you say that sustainability is one of the things that is very strong within that maker culture movement? Yes, sustainability is something that comes into to making and maker culture from various different perspectives. That could be economic sustain, sustainability or the sustainability and provenance of the materials that we use. I'd say that we certainly aim for sustainability. It's a very conscious act within the maker culture, but we make mistakes. It's a very young culture. And because it democratizes everything, everyone gets a piece of paper. Everyone gets access to everything. So the value of those things fluctuates um, depending on what you're doing. In our workshops, we go through an incredible amount of paper. It's a reality of the amount of students that we have and the fact that we invite everyone to do it, whether or not it's going to fit their practice. And we have to be really conscious of that. We have to be really aware of the consumable items that we're using, of the power and the water that we're using and what we're producing at the end of that. So it's, it's an imperfect model right now, but we are aware of it and we always try to move towards sustainability and local sourcing and, and leaving an appropriate footprint for the task that we're doing. The theme of the LDF show overall is Uncertainty Playground, and a lot about maker culture is to do with play and experimentation, having fun. So perhaps we could talk a bit more about the different events that are running and the different people involved in those events. One of the workshop series that we'll be inviting public to attend will be about screen printing as a vehicle for function and design. So screen printing is when you take some nylon mesh and you stretch it around a frame, it's often wood or metal, and you pass things through it to something else, and that's the basics of it. Almost anything that is a liquid can pass through a screen onto anything else that is a solid. And that makes it really exciting. And one of the workshops that we'll be doing within that framework is about natural dye. So we'll be collecting and foraging and looking for scrap waste and producing color dyes with it to, to print with onto different surfaces, onto fabrics, onto textiles, onto papers, onto glass, onto metal, onto wood, and seeing how these things marry or don't marry. We're in early stage planning of that yet, and we're not sure what it would be like to collect food scraps from everyone or to forage in our local neighborhood. We're not even sure really what kind of plant life or vegetation we have around Elephant and Castle. So we've got a pre-event event, a research day, where we're going to have a look. We're going to see if there are cabbages or avocados or mushrooms. All of these things produce beautiful colors, and a lot of waste product can produce really beautiful colors that we can use for printing, for making that multiple. There's another workshop which is around uh, DIY uh, musical instrument making, which is going to involve using found and recycled materials to create DIY stringed musical instruments. Uh, that's in collaboration with Tom Fox, who's a craftsman and maker. There's actually a really beautiful performance that uh, links wonderfully with this, and that's from another strand of LCC's contribution to the London Design Festival. So in the sustainability strand, one of my printmakers, one of my technicians, uh, Liz, Liz K. Miller, uh, will be showing a series of circular scores, and she works with a musician to perform these scores, and that musician uses DIY stringed instruments. So we're hoping that these performances will take place at Elephant Park. So it will be about printmaking, about music scoring, and about sustainable instrument making. So these will be fully tunable machines um, that can generate beautiful sound. 
Uh, so it's a way of linking between our strands. Uh, we don't like to isolate ourselves. We don't want to just be, we're the makers and they're the showers. Uh, so there's a, a lot of crossover between the different areas and we hope that the public will see that crossover as being a really integral part to our teaching practice here. You'll be able to get involved with this show from the 16th of September when it opens to the public. Please subscribe to Uncertainty Playground on iTunes and don't forget to rate and review us if you're enjoying this and share it with your network. In episode four, we'll look forward to the creation of a living archive at LCC, reimagining George Orwell's Room 101. Thanks to Professor David Toop of LCC, who composed the original music for this podcast, and to my producer, Lucy Dearlove. This was a Chalk and Blade production for LCC.